from Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that in your giving you may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma, but I'm primarily uh, just charged and, and leading at our downtown congregation. I'm the congregational pastor there, so I lead week in and week out. I got to be here, though, with some of you a few weeks back, though I know sometimes you're not here every single week. So if this is your first time, me getting to meet you in a very impersonal way, I admit, uh, then hi, I'm Kent. And uh, it's good to meet you. Let's dive into this text. And in order to do that, I'd love to pray for us. Father God, Lord, you in this text, I think, are doing so much to free people in this room, in this moment. Lord, there is so much to your words that we often can put in a category of archaic or not able to understand the modern nuances of our lives, but this, as much as anything in your sermon, proves to me and I think is proving countlessly to those who have engaged with it that you very much so know what it is to be human. And you very much so know the common pathways that we tend to find ourselves trapped in and the tyranny that we put ourselves under, particularly the eyes and the approval of everyone around us. And Lord, there's few cultures that have been more tyrannized by that. There's few people that have been more driven to anxiety and depression over that than us in this place, in this city, in this culture, in this time. And so, Lord, bring free healing. Freeing, healing, and power, which comes through your spirit and not through ability to put together ideas and illustrations. So I pray for your empowerment of your spirit to do all that I cannot do, which is all the true heavy lifting that will be done this morning. I pray that in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am into the NCAA tournament, and I don't know if you're here because you're not, because there's actually going to be a game that has much interest of my own, starting in towards the end of this sermon, and uh, that's fine. I'm here, and I love you guys, and, uh, and I'm present, but uh, either way, it's a time where not only do you get, I mean, for the first time now, 16 seeds beating one seeds in the pandemonium of March mad- Madness, but you also get like this awakening of rivalries or like maybe the creation of rivalries that maybe have or haven't been to a great degree in the past. Like right now, towards the end of my sermon, there might even be like Purdue fans sitting next to Butler fans or maybe even a Purdue fan gets served communion by a Butler fan. And, you know, there's kind of this moment where they're like, the body of Christ broken for you, and you're going down. And 
that's okay if that happens. Um, i a little irreverent, I know. But either way, uh, the point is that I love this time of year. In fact, it made me think of one rivalry that I guess is old. It's longstanding because they share an in-state rivalry between Kentucky and Louisville, which I've heard that this rivalry is actually kind of intriguing in the fact that there aren't many exclusively University of Louisville fans, which is odd because they're a powerhouse when it comes to basketball. They won the national championship recently. They are regularly in the mix. But even students who attend the University of Louisville, I've been told by those who do, more, a majority of them, or at least if not, it might seem that way, tend to root for the University of Kentucky while attending the University of Louisville. And there was a wrinkle in this rivalry a few years ago that I remember uh, being covered on the news when students from the University of Kentucky spurned their nemeses by making T-shirts, as you do when you're in college and you're trying to spurn your nemeses, that said just a simple one-sentence naked assertion, Louisville doesn't exist. Which is interesting because you made a T-shirt to say that. But... The point was that they were trying to get under the skin of Louisville, and they did. Like, it was covered not only in the news, I'm assuming, in Louisville and Lexington, but it was even covered in the news here of just the amount of outrage that that spurned because they were saying, hey, I don't acknowledge your existence on any level, even to the point of, like, it basically just become that game that you play as a child when you purposely ignore someone by saying statements like every time they speak, oh, is there a window open that a draft has been let in or something. So whatever you're trying to do to indicate, I see you, but I don't see you. And you in that moment, having received the intentional ignorance of another person, even if you try to play like, I don't care. I want you to ignore me. I'm glad you're not talking to me. And my day is better now because you're not saying anything because you're so annoying. It doesn't matter because you do care. There's something in you that it frustrates you. You want to be seen, or at least you want the dignity of being recognized as existing. And I thought, man, there's, so, there's something in that. And it made me think how I was told one time by, I forget who it was now, they were simply just saying, hey, when you're approached by somebody who wants money on the street, they said, I don't care what you end up doing. I don't care what you think is right. I don't care if you want to give to them or you don't want to give to them. If you think that's enabling or if you think that's helpful, Whatever you choose to do, look that person in the eyes and recognize their existence and say yes or no. Because he said, hey, it's a, it's a humbling position to be in, and if you're doing it regularly, you're probably inviting a bunch of scorn from the person who's being asked because they feel uncomfortable. They don't want to have to say no. We're all people pleasers. I don't want to just like you know shut them down, but yet I don't want to do it or I, I just am uncomfortable. I don't know how to go forward in the situation. So you just kind of look forward. You walk on. You, you say no thank you. And maybe you have a fear for your safety. I mean, there could be legitimate reasons, but whatever reason, he's just said, hey, if you can, if you feel like on any level that you you know have the, have the draw to do so, look them in the eyes and... and Say yes or no, but do it from a position of a small but very real relationship you have with them in that moment. Because there's something about being looked at. It's why two lovers who are in the throes of infatuation need to do nothing more to excite each other's passion than stare into one another's eyes. There's something in us 
designed to be looked at? What is that? I was holding on to that question. It was fascinating me as I was prepping the sermon. And then I held it in tension to another question that you have to deal with as you read Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Is why does Jesus think that there is a way in which you can be looked at that is extremely dangerous to your soul? That's what he's saying. I mean, if you just are still open at 525 and the Bible's around you, or if you uh, want to flip back open or refresh your Bible here at chapter 6, verse 1, it says, the very first words, beware, translation, look out, or you are in danger if you don't recognize what's coming for you right now. Well, what are we in danger of? What do we need to be aware of? What are we looking out for, Jesus? Simply this, of practicing your righteousness before others, uh, other people in order to be seen by them. So, Jesus is going to take this phrase, this verse 1 of chapter 6. It's actually the thesis statement that is going to be over the next section in the Sermon on the Mount. See, we've been tracking the Sermon on the Mount, and we opened up with the Beatitudes. Hey, who's actually blessed when God's kingdom comes to full fruition in this world? And then we moved on into this statement of, hey, you are the salt and light of the earth. And then Jesus says, hey, about your righteousness, it needs to go beyond that of all the people you think are killing it right now. All the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. I need you have to see a deeper righteousness than that. And, of course, their minds were blown. Like, how do you get deeper than what they do? And he said, well, here's the problem. Their righteousness is all on the surface. And so, yes, they haven't murdered anyone, but they're seething with anger and are bitter so that they either explode or just burn quietly on the inside for their entire lives. Or, yeah, they haven't committed adultery, but if you have lust towards a man or woman in your heart, then you need to deal with the same root that's just not making all the way to the public eye. And so he says, hey, you need to practice righteousness in a way that is deeper than that. But then in another ironic twist or unexpected caveat he says hey by the way also even when you practice really good righteousness there's a way to do it that's really really toxic to your soul and you need to know it and so he's going to draw that out into three main examples today is giving of the needy last week you start a little bit out of order with a sermon on prayer and then next week you're going to continue with a specific sermon on the lord's prayer uh, and you can see that even, you know, it says at first, hey, beware of practicing your righteousness. And in verse 2, thus, when you give to the needy. And then if you could go flip the page for that really unfortunate page turn, I have to negotiate all morning. To verse 5, it says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And then you go down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. It's this reoccurring idea that Jesus is concerned about the way that you practice righteousness in these three specific areas. And they're not random. Jesus wasn't just, I mean, he's good at like practical illustrations, but he wasn't just like, "Mm, I need something, giving the needy, prayer, fasting, that'll preach, let's go. He's keying in on very known realities in a Jewish person's life particularly one who was seeking to be righteous in this day and age. Because there was just an assumed idea that you very much so practiced your righteousness in multiple ways, but nevertheless 
than giving to the needy and praying and fasting. It would be the equivalent today of, hey, what do Christians do to practice their faith or to grow intimate towards God? Well, they pray, they read their Bible, they go to church. Or maybe around Soma, you're like, hey, our language is like we talk about like prayer and and we talk about uh, scripture. But we also talk about being in community and we talk about being on mission to your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family. And so they're just these assumed realities that get talked about all the time in their lives. And Jesus assumes they're doing them. He says, hey, oh, by the way, when you pray, when you give to the needy, I, it's not like a if you do it, it's a when it happens, this should be your heart posture. Because people use this text specifically, these three sections, but particularly this first one, and they misapply it regularly. I hear Christians and I guess non-Christians, but particularly I hear Christians, people in the church do this all the time. There's two big ways that people get this very wrong and therefore live it out very wrongly. I'm going to give you one now and then we'll talk about the other in a little bit. The first one is they say, okay, Jesus says, beware of doing your righteousness or, or doing good works is another way you could translate it. And they say, okay, so don't do good works. It becomes a reaction against 16th century Catholicism, which was seen as a works-based righteousness. I do, therefore I'm accepted before God. And if you grew up in the church, and I know some of you didn't, and I'm glad you're here, but if you did grow up in the church, maybe some of you got the unintended impression that it was saying, okay, so there's this idea that the gospel is that you are saved by Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, and that is simply the end of the statement. And that is true. That there's nothing you can do. I mean, the way that I like to say it all the time is that there's nothing I can do to make God love me any less. And because of Jesus, there's nothing I can do to make him love me any more. I am complete in a complete work before God right now as his son. I can't add to Jesus' resume and a daily quiet time. And now I'm really killing it in God's eyes. So if that's true, and it is, the danger of the gospel-centered movement, which we're very much so a part of, is that you can choose to hear or get the unintended consequence, the unintended statement of it's all about your heart and God doesn't really care about what your behavior is. But I've been reading the Sermon on the Mount recently. It seems like he really cares about our behavior. Like every verse, every section is Jesus saying, hey, that's not how you do that. Yes, I don't want you to do that action and then now live it out of like this heart that doesn't actually have a relationship with me. No, I want you to have a right relationship with me. And now that you know and are connected to me, the only one who can ever empower you to live this way, now do this. Because it's how I designed you. And it's how you want to live. Stop hurting each other. Stop hurting yourselves and live in the way of which I've made you to interact with me and this world. It's like right now with my son, my oldest. Uh, I have three sons. They're all very young. The oldest is going to turn four this week. We are working adamantly on, he has this um, thing he does with his voice, um, whining and screaming. And It's all, it's his only form of communication right now. 
And we tell him all the time, hey, buddy, it's okay to cry. You can cry. Tears can call, fall from your eyes. You can vocalize that. You can be sad. That's all right. It's not okay to whine and scream. And crying often effortlessly segues into much crying and screaming. And so we're saying to him all the time, you may not whine and you may not scream. The moment you do either of those two acts, I will press against that. I realize that's just the surface behavior. But I care that he stops it because it's annoying. (laughs) But I also care deeply about his heart. I know that he's whining and screaming because he just wants the book, not because he wants to read the book, because he doesn't want anybody else, particularly his brothers, to have the book. Or he's whining and screaming because he thinks that everyone is against him and nobody knows how to achieve his deepest desire but him. And I want him to know, no, he's under authority and he's loved by his authority. And his authority is not trying to oppress him and make him less of who he is. His authority is trying to make him more of who he is. Trying to train him in the ways of what it is to be a human, is to be a young boy and a young man and then a full-grown man. And so I want to get at the root. But I'm getting at the fruit in the meantime because I will... Kill someone, and that's just not going to be helpful in the meantime. And God's much more redeemed and sanctified than me because he's the, well, he's not redeemed. He never has to be redeemed. He's perfect in who he is. But, yeah, edit that out of the podcast. Anyway, uh, God is much more loving than me. And he simply wants us to stop because he knows how he's made us. And so don't mishear what Jesus is saying, but then do hear what he is saying. Let's get into it. Uh, a little bit more in-depthly here by rereading verse 1 and then 2. Where Jesus says, Hey, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Okay, a couple quick clarification of terms because there's a few things that are not really evident in English which would be more evident if you're reading in the Greek. So first of all, righteousness is not how you've always heard righteousness used in church. Matthew uses it differently than the Apostle Paul uses it. So if you see it in Matthew, don't think, oh, I saw this in Philippians and so it's the same thing. Because the Apostle Paul, particularly in gospel-centered churches, as I already referenced, are going to rightly interpret that Paul is saying, hey, righteousness is something that cannot come from you but can only truly come from God. And so to hunger and to thirst from righteousness, many people will say, is to hunger and thirst from a righteousness that comes from God, from, from Jesus living righteously on my behalf, and therefore now I'm accepted as a son or daughter before the Father. It is absolutely true, again, if you're not reading Matthew. Because people have taken that and applied it to, hey, that's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness in the Matthew Beatitudes. That's a beautiful way to preach that text. Completely inaccurate. And it's because Matthew is a Jew, and he's writing to Jews. And so he uses righteousness as Jews would use it. And to them, righteousness was a relational term. And there were three relationships they were primarily concerned about. One was between them and God. They wanted to be in a right relationship. They wanted to interact with God in a way that he had made for them to interact with them. And other was a right relationship to others, to my wife, to my husband, to my roommate, to my kids, to my employees, to my employer. I'm in a right relationship with them. And then the last was 
a right relationship, particularly to those who have been dealt a very unfortunate hand because of the brokenness of the world. That from the jump in the Bible, when things break because of human sin, and God says, hey, none of this is going to work the way that it was supposed to now. He is eminently concerned with those who are going to receive the harder edge of injustice and brokenness and sin in this world. And so he's saying, hey, the world's broken. It's not going to work, but it's not all going to be dealt out evenly. And so you see all throughout the Old Testament, he calls a people to himself. And he says, hey, I am all about caring for the least of these, and I want you to be about caring for the least of these. And so he puts in laws and and things into their lives where it just says, hey, when you harvest your field, don't go over it twice because you don't need every single grape. Like, be a good steward, harvest, like, good, use good strategy, good use tactics, like, work hard. But then if you drop some, let those go. And let somebody who's walking through your fields who is really unaware of where their next meal could possibly come from take that. In fact, even the way that you harvest it, harvest in a circle, and that's a square field. So leave those edges untouched because other people are going to need that. And I want you to build in the way that you harvest margin for other people. And there were things like the year of Jubilee, where somebody who had sold themselves into slavery or indentured servitude is probably more of what we would see it as now today, where they had sold themselves because they couldn't pay a debt ever so many years, every seven years, and then every seven sevens of 49 years, there was this total Jubilee where everybody was given back their freedom and their property and everything that they had to sell away just because life had been harsh to them. And it all comes flowing back to the rightful owners. And it's this beautiful celebration. Now, we have no evidence that they ever practiced it in full. But God said from the beginning, hey, this is what my people, this is what it looks like to reflect me to the world. Because he's all about the needy. And it's not just giving to the needy as it's translated again here. Like that's, it's, is that? But it's more than that. Like the King James Version will say almsgiving, which I think is kind of helpful because nobody really knows what that means. So you have to look more into it. And it's more of this sense of an entire life practice of caring about those who, again, have gotten a bad hand. It would be more akin to our verbiage of being one who is very passionate about social justice. That yes, it's giving financially, and it's giving of my time, it's orchestrating my life, my budget, my job, and all things to care about those who God cares about. And so, in that idea of righteousness, in that idea of giving to the needy or almsgiving, he says, hey, when you do that, don't hire trumpets. Or uh, hire trumpets is one interpretation. There's actually three potentially. It says, sound no trumpets before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. There's three potential translations or ideas that Jesus is directly getting at here um, that scholars have kind of worked out, uh, I will give them to you in order of least likely to most likely. The least likely idea is that people were literally hiring trumpets. And it was just like this idea of like, got to lift it with two hands, folks. And they walked in and they just gave their gift and just, you know, literally somehow missed this concept of just like, you probably shouldn't hire trumpets um, to do that. It's just not, not really cool. Le- least likely, I will admit. The second more likely scenario is that the synagogues themselves had trumpets. 
There was no welfare system at this time. There's no government aid. There's no food stamps or WIC or Medicare and Medicaid. The government has no desire to care for the needy. And it was partly because the synagogues were already doing it. And of this time, there was thought that synagogues themselves could have trumpets. And they would blare them through the streets whenever a particular need walked through the door. So a woman comes in, recently divorced, unjustly so, unjustly so, multiple kids. They don't know where they're going to eat or sleep that night. And so the synagogues would blare trumpets throughout the streets. Yeah, it would be like an early church bat signal goes in the air. And then you just go into giving to the needy almsgiving mode. And when you do that, there's a potential that you know the right streets to go down. The ones that are most trafficked, the ones of people that you're trying to catch the eye of. And Jesus says, beware of that. Or the third and probably now most likely scenario was that there were giving boxes in the synagogues that were made out of ram's horns, were shaped like trumpets and actually were used as trumpets. And when you gave your offering, because... Most of them just didn't take the time to set up a push pay account. They used coins. And if you hit a coin on a ram's horn that's in the shape of a trumpet with the right angle, you can get a pretty good ping. And so he said, hey, don't bring in your coins and flick it with the amount of vigor to ring out to the synagogue who's come in. Or don't be like that person who like finally cleaned out the floorboards of their car and found $7,000 in loose change on the, just in the mats of your Chevy celebrity. And now are like going into the coin star and like, you know, just bringing it into these ram's horns. And it's just like, it's going to take a second. And just, you can do that and you should give and you should clean out your car. But there's a way in which you're doing it where you're not seeking anything other than the eyes of everyone around you. And you're being like the hypocrites, which hypocrites was a word of that day. It was always used in one simple way. It wasn't a positive or a negative term. You never would have been like, oh, you're being such a hypocrite. and mean, that is a pejorative insult. It was always used as just literally as an actor. A hypocrite was an actor playing a part. And so a hypocrite was a person who was on stage playing a part. But this is the first time that Jesus actually turns this into a negative term. He says you're being like the hypocrites who are giving in the synagogues. This is like a, a Seuss, a Dr. Seussism, like literally this just came into the Western language through Jesus saying it this way at this moment. Just like Dr. Seuss would regularly just make up words because he just needed stuff. I mean, he's rhyming all the time. Sometimes it's not easy. So it's easier just to make up a word. Like I found out, actually, I said this last week at downtown, and one in between services, someone came up and said, the word nerd is an example of that. We use nerd all the time. You thought maybe that had, like, this rich history of etymology. It was just literally Dr. Seuss needing to rhyme nerd. And so he said it, and now you can be a nerd, and everybody, it's cool to be a nerd or to nerd out on something. We use it all the time, and it never was used before until it was just a practical need for a rhyme. And so now Jesus, hey, practically needs to communicate an idea to these people. He says, you know what that's like? That's like hypocrites. It's like actors. Now, those who know me know that I, I actually was a theater major. And when I graduated from my theater major, I was an 
actor, and at times I was a working actor. And when I was in those times, I learned a lot about the motivation of actors. And the first of all, there's one motivation of actors that's very um, not pure or not right, good, and true, and it is what makes theater majors the most insufferably annoying people on any college campus at any given moment. And I put myself in that group. If you're here, like, what are you saying? I'm with you there. And it's just some, like, impure desire of, like, I just wasn't shown enough attention or was a middle child or something. I don't know what it is. And uh, I wasn't. And either way, they, you just come and you are needing to have your ego stroked or just at least people to look at you so you're using inappropriately loud voices in the cafeteria to draw the attention to you like every single day. And that's some of what Jesus is getting at here because I think there's some of what he's trying to say like, hey, there's, there's a void that you're trying to fill by playing a part. But let's also talk about the, the positive or maybe the purest intention of an actor because it's not just all I need to be seen and I, I need all the attention. That's there. But there's also a, a desire that actors, and I think the, those who are best at it, that truly access, is a desire to be artists who are pressing into a discipline where they explore relationships and emotions and events, some that have happened, some that could happen, and they explore what it is to be human before other people's eyes. I different things on to, to see, hey, how would that react? How would that feel? How could we experience the pain of that, the healing of that, the, the joy of that? But even those actors, when cut is yelled or the curtain goes down, they stand up, they take off their costumes and their makeup, and they go home. They're called by a different name. They have a different personality. I mean, how many times have you seen an interview with an actor and it was just weird to see them not being in their role? Some of them are like, I didn't know he was British or I didn't know he was like from New Zealand. And it's just weird to see them because how you're used to seeing them is not who they are. All of last year, we learned that a lot of actors that we thought were really good people are not so good people because that's not what you saw wasn't who they were. And Jesus is saying, hey, you're trying to fill a void and you're doing it by showing the world something other than what's really going on inside of you. I said this a couple of weeks ago when I was here. really bears repeating. One of the biggest reasons that you struggle with addiction or pain or just a fear and anxiety and depression, all these things, come from the gap of where the world perceives you and where you actually are. And in between there, that's where pain comes out of. That's where a, a sense of being unknown and therefore a sense to having to dress up your soul and what it was never, what it isn't currently or never was. And the soul always gets out. Always gets out. It will get out through healthy means or it'll get through destructive means. But what flourishes in the dark is destroyed in the light. That's why Jesus and why the scriptures are going to always say, hey, the truth really will set you free. As hard as it is to acknowledge how much of a train wreck you are, 
and we all are, it might be the most freeing thing you'll do this year. But the reason that comes in general, that's really kind of more of a parenthetical aside, is because the heart, Jeremiah is going to say, hey, the heart is desperately wicked and who can understand it? It's really hard to parse out motivations of a person. Like when you think, okay, why am I doing what I do? Like why am I doing this good thing or this righteous act? Like we should be real to at least acknowledge it can be really difficult to know if my completely pure in my intention. Example, right now, what I'm doing. I'm preaching to you a sermon. It's a good work. I hope people are encouraged by it. I hope people are challenged. I hope people are instructed in who God is and how God's designed them and how God's designed this world. I know that there's much good that can come of this. You have no clue what my motivation is right now. It could be one of three things. It could be more than that, but three are really easy to draw off the surface here. I could have a passionate, unadulterated love for God and his word and have been so changed, have been so freed by knowing him and knowing what is true that it regularly drives me to get out of my bed and to meet and sit down and sit across with people that are struggling or our marriages are falling apart and sit with people who often will walk away and never take the freedom that is being laid before them because people desperately need to know this. Because free people free people. Or, you got to make money. Not a lot of people go into ministry for that. But but they do go into ministry because, hey, I can make money and I like doing discipleship over coffee. I like, you know, mixing up with people's lives. I like knowing stuff. I like helping people. It's a really flexible schedule. So yeah, it doesn't maybe make a ton of money, but you know, there's some perks to the job. Now, people who go into it for those reasons typically don't make it because it's actually there's a small part of it that's that and a lot of other parts. But that's potentially a reason why one would start. And maybe I just got here and well, come on, it's like I got to do it. I got to get here. Or I have a deep, deep void in my soul that I long to be filled by the adoration and the respect of God's people. And so I flourish by being up regularly in places where I'm admired, where I can use my giftings, where I can be praised, where I can be an example of the righteousness of God. Some of you are like, I knew it. (laughs) I knew it. Oh, boy, I am never coming to church again. And a lot of pastors, that is absolutely their chief motivation. And I'll be real with you, that's that's in me. And you say, like, okay, which is the three? It's a mixed bag. All three of them have reality in this moment. I'm working actively towards that which are not of God, not of life and trying to work in towards those which are very real and are of life. But they're all there. And now let's flip the microscope on you. Because you guys all have jobs or aspire to. And 
when you show up at your job or your class or whatever it is tomorrow morning, is it 24-7 I long to meet the needs of others and the world around me by pursuing the mission and vision and values of our organization or my university so that human flourishing might abound and this world might see the joyful kingdom of God come into our midst? Or is it a bit of a mixed bag? Yeah, you've got some positive motivation. You've got some real desire you're trying to work out. You've got some really negative, really self-centered emotion and, and motivation in there too. It's really hard to parse these things out because they're often intertwined together. And Jesus is going to say, hey, to allow that part of your heart that has an unrighteous motivation to continue to sit, to continue to be driven to do great things, and you can do great things with that being your motivation. I mean, if you desire to be loved, live out the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, I don't know if you've read any of this or like really like put it into like, how would that apply? I mean, people often will say the Sermon on the Mount is unrealistic. It's impossible. Like no one could actually do it. But there's very few people that say this isn't like a really beautiful picture of what it is to be a human in this world. And if you could just put like one, two or three, a fraction of this into practice, People will look at your life and find it to be very compelling. You'll get praise. But if that's your motivation, you'll never have enough. Again, I was an actor. Uh, there's this reality, particularly in live theater, when you get to the curtain call and the applause and everything. Because people are just people pleasers, all the actors know we're going to get the standing O outside of just a really like just old and tired crowd or whatever. We're going to get the standing O at some point. But you just know what's the difference between an obligatory standing ovation and an actual one. And one of the key ways to know is like if they just wait to like the last second the main character goes up and it's like, well, like I don't really want to stand that long, but I'll stand for this guy or girl. I mean, they had to learn the most lines. So that's something. And that's kind of like, all right, we'll give you this, but we're not, our hearts are not in it. But if they stand for like you as the actor and you're like third, fourth lead, like your support role, you know you killed it. And I had a couple roles where I was like, you know, I'm not going to, you know, vocally, just, you know, it was the, the comedy of it all. It just was right. And... I remember one in particular, I had that moment where like, you know, of course, you know, dead center is the main character. I'm like way off here. I'm like third or fourth person out and everything. And they're going every other side. And then it gets to me and I step forward for my little, you know, and, and whoops start to emerge. And then there starts to be people popping up and not everybody, but some people couldn't handle themselves. And. I enjoyed that moment because it was one of the most filling experiences of the true joyful celebration of my talents, my accomplishments, of me as a human in that moment. I walked away from the theater feeling very full. I'm not full anymore. I wasn't full the next night at that curtain call. 
because less people stood, or at least what I perceived to be less. There was less of an immediate reaction. I wondered what I did wrong. Katy Perry, who was the first to reach 100 million followers on her Twitter handle. This January was quoted as saying that she considers herself a victim of social media. And I don't think she's being overdramatic at all. She tweeted out, I can't wait until Instagram culture is over so we can all be ourselves again. Because there's something about putting on a mask, of filling that void. It will fill you in a moment. But it has no longevity to actually be what your soul can found its joy upon. So, again, if that's your goal, congratulations. You'll get it. And that'll be it. And so Jesus is going to provide ways to move forward. He's going to say, hey, what does it look like to actually be human? And in it, he will go on to say this in verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let uh, your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, this is the other point where people really misapply and misinterpret this text. And they think that Jesus is asking for some level of crazy incoordination that only a four-month-old would truly have. And they do these things where it's like, I want to do something right or I want to do something good, but then people will know about it and that'll take my reward of it all and just it'll be all, you know, I want to raise my hands and worship the Lord, but I, people will think I'm doing it just to like be showboating and everything. I, I don't want to be seen in this moment. Not what's actually being said here. What's actually coming out is, I think what is, I don't know, perfectly put forward by Dallas Willard, who writes The Divine Conspiracy, which is basically a long commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Because again, Jesus is always primarily going after the heart. He cares about the behavior, but the heart is where he's going after, because he knows that's where the behavior comes from. And Willard says this. I don't have it. I had a slide for this, but it's apparently not working, so you just have to listen and do, because this is really good. The kind of people who have been so transformed by their daily walk with God that good deeds naturally flow from their character are precisely the kind of people whose left hand would not notice what their right hand is doing. As for example, when driving one's own car or speaking one's native language, what they do, they do naturally, often automatically, simply because they are pervasively internally the people who would not have to invest a lot of reflection in doing good for others. Their deeds are in secret no matter who is watching. They hardly notice their own deeds and they rarely remember it. It's what you may have come to know in the business world as being unconsciously competent. There's four levels of competency in every act. You can be unconsciously incompetent. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to get better. I don't know why I'm so bad. I don't know if I ever could be better. Then you can move, if you work hard enough and work long enough in that area, to becoming consciously incompetent. I know why I'm bad. And I actually can be freed by that because now I know how I can get better. And so if I work in those areas, now where I consciously know I need help, I then can become consciously competent. I can do it. I can actually do it at a high level. I still have to think through the fundamentals. I still can't take my eye off the ball or I can't take my you know, vision off the goal. I still need to think through all the practicals of the stroke or the swing or the shot or you know, whatever act it might be. 
But eventually, after a lifetime, you become unconsciously competent. Michael Jordan, if asked, hey, how do you drop 40 points in the finals when you're sick as a dog? doesn't be like, well, I think about this. Like, he doesn't know. He would be confused by the question because he just did it. He could play at a level where he couldn't tell you, this is how you get to be as good as me. He was completely unconsciously competent in what he did. That's what Jesus is getting at. It takes the formation of a life that is intentionally shaping themselves into the shape of who Jesus was. So that it's good to do things intentionally. It's, this is not saying, hey, never go out and do an un, uh, uh, intentionally righteous act that you have to think about, you have to be very conscious of. In fact, the only way you ever become unconsciously competent is to be conscious of what you're doing and intentionally put spiritual disciplines and community and people and, and rhythms in your life that are going to create... Maybe a heart that has no care for the needy and no care for social justice, but I'm going to go through the action of doing it with the people who do it and over time shape myself in a place where I now become someone who, yeah, I, I, I'm a more caring and I love it more. I have to think about it. I have to tell myself. I have to put it in my schedule. I have to make reminders. But then eventually, over a lifetime, you've been shaped into someone who, it's not like, oh man, how much money do I want to give this year? Or have, do I have enough in my account right now to, to give to this person? Or, or can I, like, do I have to, like, say this to value signal the right thing on Twitter? Or, or do I just naturally know how to defend a biblical position of what God means for people to care for others and, and to take care of others? And you just become someone who you're not thinking about which hand is making the motion. You're just doing it. And. When you do that, Jesus says, then you have your reward. And people get really weirded out when you talk about rewards when it comes to God because they're like, well, if you can't earn your salvation, then, then why, why do you get rewards? And, and like, are some people's eternal existences going to be better than other people's because they did more and they got more, like, they have the real heaven and you have, like, heaven light. And it gets to a place where people hear what Jesus is not saying, but they miss what he's saying. How do I look today? You look awesome. Does that mean I don't look awesome every other day? No. Hear what I'm saying. You look great. Not what I'm not saying. And so people, they hear, oh, I I need to work really hard to get a reward and and I have to have some sort of competitive level in the kingdom of God. Not that your God is a good father and he loves to reward his children. If I tell my son, hey, buddy, if you clean your room, without being asked again, we're going to go get ice cream. He hasn't earned my love by cleaning his room. I haven't given him any more love by rewarding him with ice cream. I love my son. I want him to be motivated to do something that will be good for him long term. And sometimes I just want to give him ice cream. I want to set some hoops that are pretty wide to jump through. Because I want to reward him. I want to be like, holy cow, like you put three things away, stop everything, we're going to sub-zero. Or maybe graders because they got a parking lot. you got to think about those things when you got three small children. And either way, we go because I love my sons and I want to give them good stuff. That's why when Jesus says, hey, 
even the cups of cold water you give in my name will be rewarded a hundredfold. Don't hear, oh, so you better start be giving some more cups of water. Do hear, he'll give rewards to absolutely everything, even cups of water, because he loves you. Because he loves to see his kingdom come. He loves to see the flourishing of all people. And his rewards are not, oh, so you're going to miss out. It's, oh, he just longs to give to you. And the most tangible reward, the one that Jesus doesn't say much. I mean, all the stuff to talk about rewards. It doesn't get into specifics of when or what it will be and all that. But one part of the reward that I think is very, uh, there's eternal realities that I think are very true about it. I don't have time to get into it. But one of the present realities is you receive the approval and the eyes that we're actually longing to have. This summer, this past summer, I went on vacation with my family uh, to my grandparents' house, and they have a pool, and it was like, you know, dog hot like every day. So we're in the pool every day. And last, the year before, even my oldest, like, wouldn't even get in the water. He's freaked out by it. But this year, they were all about it, like him and our second son. And so we moved on the next level, which is jumping into the water. And every single jump, both my sons, before they go off into the water, they stop and they say, hey, Daddy, look at me. And then they jump. And they get back up and they get ready and they stop and they look over and they look at me. And they say, Daddy, look at me. I look over. And they jump again. They did it like 500 times. They never failed to ask me to look at them. Because you were made to have eyes upon you. You're made to be approved of. You're made to have someone look at you and say, this is my son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. It's not that you have a wrong desire that you need to squash. You have a right desire that you're taking to the wrong place. To a culture who might approve of you today and tomorrow decide you didn't check enough boxes or we're just not as excited about what you did or we changed the goal and now you actually need to be all about this. And so you might have gotten all the approval one day and it's all gone and it will drive you insane chasing it. So go ahead and chase it. You'll spend the rest of your life for little ovations that last a half a second in the grand spectrum of eternity. And then it will be gone tomorrow and you'll be forever wondering what you did wrong. Our culture is tyrannized by the approval of people and it's because it never fills and it was never meant to. You were meant to have approval, but not by culture who's here with you today and gone with you tomorrow. But by your father who loves you and looks at you and longs to see you walk into shaping yourself into the image of Jesus and bringing his kingdom. And he looks at you and he's well pleased. Not because now you're working for him, but because you're his child. And he loves you. And you're a child and you're bringing in these things that are good for you and good for his other children and bringing his kingdom. And he's overjoyed. And so, if you want to move forward, I'll end with a real practical way because Jesus does it. Like, okay, this is me. I'm like, I do have mixed motivations. I Instagram every time, the Bible on the table, the journal off to the side, the coffee mug wistfully but intentionally placed with the right amount of steam, and a hashtag 
before I fill my cup, I fill my cup. (laughs) But on some level, it's all about my cup being filled by enough likes or enough mentions. Then do something this week. Do an act of righteousness. Something is a good work. Care for the needy around you. And don't tell anybody about it. It's okay. If people find out, okay, they got you. It doesn't take away from your reward in that moment. It wasn't meant to like, okay, now i got to figure out how I can do it and never be seen. But I'm going to do it in a way that my intention is not to be seen. And in that moment, pause and reflect upon the eyes of your father and the smile as he looks upon you and says, you are my beloved son or daughter, and with you I am well pleased. It'll free you for a moment, and you'll be right back there. But over years and years of shaping yourself into someone who is unconsciously competent at doing good works, not for the approval of others, but for the joy of a father who already loves you. Then you'll truly be free. We always end with communion. And for me, and for this sermon, as I was thinking about just how communion attaches to this uniquely, I thought about the moment where I come up to communion and I have the person say over to me, hey, this is God's body broken for you. And the next person who says, hey, this is God's blood shed for you. And I try, I mean, I'm not like enough of like just a sociopath to be able to like stare him in the eyes the whole time and like make total eye contact. But I try at least that moment when they say, hey, this is for you. And then I look back at them and say, and also for you. I don't have to. It's not like I get extra points for doing it. I just do that because I make eye contact with them. Because in that moment, they are representing the Father to me. Who is saying, hey, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And so I have their eyes upon me. And in that, I know that they are representing the Father to me. And so in a moment, we invite you to come up to a station where you can tear off bread and dip it in the cup. There will be in the front and the back, including gluten-free.